0: Black Panther director Ryan Coogler sat down for a wide-ranging conversation in a one-night-only event, presented by Film Comment and supported by Art House Convergence. Watch the entire conversation with Coogler at filmcomment.com blackpanther. Support for Film Comment comes from Sundance Institute, home to the Sundance Film Festival, returning January 24th through February 3rd. Additional info, including pass and package details, at sundance.org.
1: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast, my name is Nicholas Rapold and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is the latest edition of The Rep Report, our regular discussion of movies showing in repertory houses as well as new releases. For our new episode, we dive into the mysteries of the Jacques Tourneur retrospective at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, uh, as well as a few other films that we're looking forward to. And on our new release segment, we talk about a movie that screened too late for the best of the year survey deadlines, but probably would have ranked right up there. That movie is Clint Eastwood's The Mule, which I won't even try to describe here. So let's go right to our conversations. Welcome to another edition of the Rep Report, where we talk about Movies that are at repertory houses or other establishments that show films or projections or anything in the realm of moving image. My name is Nick Rapold. I'm the editor in chief of Film Comment, and I'm very happy today to be joined by
2: uh, Nick Pinkerton, critic and regular Film Comment contributor,
3: John Derringer, founder for Screen Slate,
4: Nellie Killian, programmer and contributing editor at Film Comment.
1: And we have one giant thing we want to talk about, but many smaller things as well. Uh, Probably the big event right now for a lot of uh, rep rep rats. Can I coin that? I don't think you coined it, but (laughs) you can say it. Rep hounds? Better still. Better still. (laughs) A nobler animal. (laughs) (laughs) Rep hounds. For rep hounds, as we call them, uh, the big event probably is the Jacques Turner series, uh, which also happens to be under the same roof where we are now at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. This is a, I don't know if it's totally complete retrospective, but basically... It's dang near if it's not. Um,
2: I see... I mean, I don't think there are any of the French films. Do they have TV in it? There is some television work. Let's all discover what's in this series right now in real time. (laughs) Um, And uh, several of the shorts uh, made in the late 1930s uh, prior to the... Val Luton collaborations, um, which are probably the works that he's best known for, Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, and the Leopard Man. Uh, but it's a, a real uh, a real embarrassment of riches. Yes, and a lot of a lot of film, a lot of the good old
1: celluloid
2: That's flickering true. through.
1: Uh, and I just want to plug: Nick wrote a, a, an excellent essay uh, in our current issue a film comment, the November, December issue, which I encourage you to seek out. I think it's online now. It we, is, yes. Yes. So you Doing should... sick metrics. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's just blowing everything else yeah. out of the water. Yeah.
4: Well, you got my click. Um, I read your essay, and I was struck by the uh, quote from Pedro Costa about the oblivion at the center of watching so many of his films, mm-hmm. the sort of not even like dreamlike state of watching them, but that there is... It was funny because I was thinking about this podcast and I was trying to remember the details of some Jacques Turner movies and I looked to your article to refresh my memory and you sort of confirmed that, in fact, they are kind of hard to sort of remember on a on this like plot detail level. Well, I mean, what's true, I think,
2: of all films that they do tend to get stripped down to the essential by memory and they just become these sort of fragments floating in the ether i think is like triply true of turner's films in some ways because the plotting tends to be i won't say motivated by dream logic exactly but there is a sort of meandering quality that runs through them it's it's not uh you don't see a lot of like real chains of like cause and effect running through Tornor, or when you do they become so difficult to follow and so complicated that you quickly sort of lose the thread an example i would give is the leopard man which The plot is sort of set into motion by some show folk coming into, uh, I believe it's New Mexico town, and trying to spice up their act by uh, putting a live animal in the show. And the live animal gets loose and people start dying in the town, mostly uh, poor Mexican-Americans because of these pea-brained show folk. But what actually is a foot turns out to be something much stranger and it's almost a sort of proto giallo type plotting um i do see a lot of sort of similarities and the just baroque strangeness and again it's not a matter of like this happens because that happens but this happens and then this happens and then this happens and it has some of that sort of propulsivity of I think dream logic, and because of that, there are little things that bob to the surface, but it's difficult to like keep a handle on the movies in total
4: I mean I think it's also just how striking like you know there's these unforgettable images in so many of the films as well um, that also sort of have that you know you think about I think about out of the past and I think about the sort of uh, like landscape. Uh, near the gas station. You know, it's just... where uh,
2: Mitchum pulled over on the shoulder of the road exactly, and his yeah. face, this sort of flicker of whiteness and this overall dark. And the just the general sort of nocturnal heaviness of things.
3: Yeah, I mean, I th- the film of his I had watched most recently was Night of the Demon, which just came out on um, this, like, insanely comprehensive Blu-ray in the U.K., which is worth checking out. But yeah, similarly, even though I had just watched it, I'm I'm mostly just left with impressions of it, um, particularly the scene where uh, Dana Andrews is uh, confronting the magician on his property, and then all of a sudden this just windstorm slowly builds. And it's a really subtle effect that, you know, builds to this maddening crescendo. And um, yeah, it's not really it's not really motivated by plot or like a cause and effect type of thing. It's just a really uh, sort of uh, ineffable uh, image or moment that, um, yeah, elevates it. Yeah, it's it's possible that it's worth mentioning, uh,
2: not to harp on it too much, but I always am sort of fascinated by filmmakers who are reputed to be sort of hard drinkers and <laughs> to what degree that may impact the films that they make. I think I'm on a, like, I'm on a My Man Godfrey uh, DVD extra, just, like, basically spending the entire time talking about La Cava's uh, alcoholism. But, I mean, that movie's particularly interesting because, like, both Dana Andrews and Turner were pretty notorious topers. Mm -hmm. And, like, throughout the movie, like, Andrews has got a glass in hand or is using, (laughs) like, every occasion to (laughs) break out a bottle. Yeah, yeah. and, yeah, I have no idea to what degree that sort of impresses itself <laughs> on the material, but it's certainly interesting to think about.
1: Do you think it, there's a, that affects the somnambulant <laughs> qualities, perhaps, Well, I mean, it or...
2: certainly goes away to explaining what happens to Turner in the early 60s. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, there's such a surfeit of these wonderful lyric moments yeah. In almost every film, uh, I was asked earlier if there had been any, anything that had really blindsided me, and I think the one that did just for its sheer sort of pictorial qualities is a Way of a Gaucho, oh. shot mm-hmm. on location down in Argentina. Yeah. As memory serves, the story was something like the Perón government had frozen a significant amount of studio uh, funds down there. And the only way that they could be used was to go shoot on location. And it's just a totally ravishing movie. Hmm. And I'm very much excited about the prospect of getting to see it writ large.
1: I mean, I'm probably a a broken record. I guess everyone talks about cat people, but that still is the the kind of uh, touchstone for me. But I mean, I'm curious for for people who don't know the, the, uh, the, uh, you know, lesser-known films um i mean do you think that turner's kind of image is i mean this series is called fear maker do you think that like overstates what what his
2: well i think i mean certainly the luton movies are extremely important in establishing his reputation and then the fact that he made night of the demon which is probably his last wholly cohesive and effective film cements his association with horror um and you know the particular talents that turner had this talent for atmospherics and sort of uh tactile moods um lend themselves to that sort of work on the other hand he's a more than capable director of westerns um and then there's the outlier that is Stars in My Crown, which oh, is yeah. Turner, I think, has been kind of historically hobbled as a candidate for full auteur honors because he was generally not known to kick a script out of bed. Whatever you threw his <laughs> way, he would take it. But this is the film that he really campaigned hard for. Mm. And, um, a movie that was a very very personal project to him and one that i as memory serves he sort of felt derailed his career because i don't believe mm-hmm. it was much of a success but that was the one film we can look to where we know that Turner really doubled down to get the movie made
1: yeah i mean and that's that's i don't know yeah that that's definitely a film that seems to capture something peculiarly American uh, in, in like all the contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always that, that scene, um, you know, with the clan has, 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 written up and in which he's able to save a man through a kind of trick more yeah. or less.
2: Through, uh, this is Joel McRae playing yeah. a small town teacher, a teacher, preacher rather, uh, in a Southern burg in the years shortly after the civil war, um, who, yeah, saves a black man from lynching by delivering an improvised uh made up um will in dialect that uh <laughs> that plays on the sentiments yeah. of all of the cat old hangmen and sends right. them home with tails between legs and yeah it's a deeply it's at one and the same time like a qu- quite strange and off-putting moment and terribly terribly moving yeah um quite unlike anything else uh, I know of in contemporary American pictures. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, one of the, as we're trying to sort of flesh out the picture of who Turner was, uh, in the Luton films, there's a lot of material that avers to race and Mm -hmm. uh, the history of race in the Americas, uh, both in uh, The Leopard Man and especially I Walked with a Zombie. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's often thought that this is primarily attributable to Luton, who is known to be uh, a very kind of socially conscious guy and a very erudite guy. But I think if you then look at this, if you look at stars in my crown, we can't say this material is entirely yeah, from Luden, or If it is, certainly more than a little of it rubbed off on Turner. Yeah,
1: and I was about to say probably you'd you correct me, but that, that that somehow is connected with the emigre idea. But that's me falling into the usual, the usual trap again. Of I mean, after all, he's also Jack Turner.
2: He is also Jack Turner. Yeah. Um, and a, a graduate of Hollywood High School with yeah. uh, with McCrae.
1: Yeah, because for some reason I was thinking about like other efforts of the time that were like skeptical in different ways about the weird American existence, you know, like something like Fury, you know, like the mm. first movie that Fritz Fritz Long makes in, in America is is that. And then like that's his like, hello, thanks for having me. This is the, this is my this is my first this is what I think of you. You're all fucking psychopaths. (laughs) Psychopaths. Um, Another thing um, that's kind of centered has a central incident of mob. What is it called? That would be a lynch mob. Um, Lynch, yeah, (laughs) lynch mob. But that that came to mind somehow, just in that kind of general post-war time of figuring out what what do we really have, what what were we fighting for, and Mm. what are we left with now?
4: I think uh, there's a number of Leo Hurwitz movies too that also sort of. we've defeated fascism abroad, but uh, who are we really to say? Yeah, strange victory, I think, would be the, the key one there.
2: Yeah, I guess if there's any sort of abiding note to point to, and it's there in Stars in My Crown, it's there in the Westerns, Canyon Passage particularly, it's there in his wonderful, wonderful David Goodis adaptation, Nightfall, this sort of pervasive melancholy <laughs> that lies mm. over everything. The opening of Nightfall, which has uh, Aldo Ray, who's in the lead role, just kind of uh, moseying along in uh, LA street, uh, looking for his hometown paper at a newsstand, failing to find it, mm. uh, sparking a cigarette, I think. Uh, it's just one of the most like tactilely sad <laughs> Scenes that uh, yeah. that I that I know of in an American movie in the late 1950s.
1: Yeah, which which seems to be some a quality or or a, you know just the idea of mood and how you achieve it that that's really attractive to filmmakers especially. And mm-hmm. I mean just to kind of retrace the path of this particular retrospective. I guess it was originally at um, Locarno, Locarno, yeah. um, and I I remember interviewing a couple filmmakers there and, and they were all just ecstatic that that happened to be the year that, that they were showing. I mean, one of them was this Brazilian movie, uh, Good Manners, where you know the, 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 the um, two filmmakers were so into the idea, the kind of transformative potential that you have mm-hmm. in entering that kind of dream space. And th- they kind of harnessed it for more political, more o- overtly political ends. Um, but there's just something about because I don't know. I mean, how many movies do you see now or feature films that really are able to um achieve a, a, a that en- enveloping sense of mm-hmm. mood yeah that
2: the, the 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 attention to just tonal qualities another scene that constantly haunts me is like brian donlevy uh kind of cooking his books uh alone at night in canyon passage and i think hoagie carmichael is out crooning or whatever it is honey hoagie carmichael does by night uh, and and peeks in and just this the the sense of solitude the sense of sort of uh scuttling shame um and just the sort of mellow uh twilight uh sadness that hangs over the whole thing it's very difficult to shake
4: I think that gets back to maybe your question about Fear Maker as the title, because I I feel like it's an interesting thing for, uh, even in the movies that have the sort of atmospherics of horror, the people who are most directly afflicted by the horror are often just um, in despair Mm -hmm. about it, rather than in sort of, you know, terror. Or a a
2: sort of low front of anxiety, constantly hanging over things
4: and uh, sort of just this uh, maybe acceptance of a sort of melancholic existence they'll have to have as a result of being cursed one way (laughs) or another, Um, which I think applies to something like Out of the Past as well as as the horror films. Mm -hmm.
2: And I think that's what makes Turner in some ways an ideal cult director. It's an odd comparison, but I would say it's it, it's almost could be likened to like Naruse, like it's somebody who just has this mood. And if it happened, you know, if the gears happen to click for you, that's the one place you can go for it. Yeah. Like you, if you want to sort of luxuriate in that slightly lonesome, slightly anxious quality that uh, Turner is able to summon up with more than a tincture of like romanticism to it as well. And this just extraordinary, this extraordinary pictorial sense. Yeah, that's he's your yeah. one-stop shopping for that thing. Yeah, he's the guy who does that. You no, know, it's
1: really funny you bring up Neruza because like that's one time of a, of a film form retrospective where I remember you just going there every night, didn't matter what it was, and just seeing like you know ten, fifteen of those. They're all good. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
3: <laughs> I think speaking of one thing that I like about this retrospective is that the character of it feels like something we used to take for granted not so many years ago which is like you have a filmmaker retrospective and it's just like completely stacked you know it's completely comprehensive and loaded with 35 millimeter prints yeah i mean i think so much about the nature of
2: studio lending practices does not lend itself to organizing comprehensive retrospectives of this sort. Like, you know, fact of the matter is in our lifetimes, we're not going to see a comprehensive entirely on film, John Ford retrospective again. We're just not, it's just not going to happen. So to have this much film running through the projector and to have this much of Turner's output uh, is pretty special.
4: I think there's been a, a trend towards more thematic series as well. I mean, I think, all, I, I, I mean, I know part of it is it's more difficult to get people out for, as you said, a, I mean, you listed a late turner earlier that I have War never. War Gods of the Deep. But I think if War Gods of the Deep were to play in a different series, but, uh, you know, people are contextualizing things differently to draw in audiences. It's difficult to draw in audiences, uh, oftentimes, for, uh, you know, the sort of more eccentric. Items in someone's oeuvre.
1: Yeah, and probably another sad truth is just people thinking of media coverage or whatever clips you can get for a series, maybe right. a little. And, and if you can have something that you know might lead to, you know, a feature, packaging it. Sorry, rep coverage. Is that a thing? <laughs> 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 That's right. Speak of something already almost gone. Should we talk about some of the other things that we've been seeing as well?
4: Maybe just on the just thinking of it in, in terms of some kind of like melancholic comedies that sort of riding that vibe from Turner uh, Film Forum is showing Flavor of Green Tea over rice and The Baker's Wife uh, over the next several weeks over the holidays, which are both films that I think have like a pretty like exquisitely gentle touch. Um, Both are funny and very sad (laughs) Uh, Not very sad, but there's... uh, Green tea over rice is is quite tragic, I think, at moments. But The Baker's Wife has a sort of a sadness to it while also being like a a very sort of uh, almost folksy uh, portrait of a town. Uh, Both are like... Baker's Wife is a completely charming film. Um, I I almost can't think of a better thing to see with your family over the holidays.
1: Any any, any other suggestions for seeing with the family over the holidays? (laughs) What if you want to shake them up? Oh God, that's a good question. Well, I know the
3: the other day someone was asking me if I would be around for Christmas to see a Clockwork Orange uh, at the Quad. <laughs>
1: Christmas classic, uh,
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, which uh, I will I will not be. I'll be in Ohio, but yeah, that's another pretty loaded series. I didn't realize how many how many titles were in that one, the X-rated series at uh, Quad Cinema.
1: Right, which I um, guess I mean I guess is maybe. They once they knew House That Jack Built was coming out maybe that it would come I was trying to figure out if they would because often the things they do are kind uh, of cleverly uh, tied to some particular Is, is that rated I don't know. X? If, well, no, I mean <laughs> I they had an the unrated version maybe they didn't know how it was going to be released I mean based upon the the the, the, the can cut that it, it might have been uh-huh. I mean they, they did a one day unrated uh. release and then they got in trouble from the MPAA who said it was too close to the rated release and it might quote, confuse parents (laughs) who are deciding whether to take kids to see the latest Lars Venture. Um,
3: I guess it does have a sort of uh, um, like children's after-school special kind of title. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional or... Oh, the X-rated? Bob the (laughs) Builder-ish. Exactly, yeah. 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 Oh, right,
1: the house that Jack built, yeah. Like
3: Mulligan and his steam shovel.
2: (laughs) (laughs) some akin works.
1: But that—that's the X-rated series, which, in a way, it just, yeah. I mean, it is feels from another age. I guess that was more of a promotional rating, and and yeah. uh, and now the—I mean, even the idea of any movie like that playing and anywhere outside the you know totally depraved precincts of Manhattan repertoire <laughs> is kind of funny. Yeah, absolute yeah.
2: dregs of humanity. <laughs> dregs
1: <laughs> of humanity. But there are some pretty rarely, barely remembered things in that series that are kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think what's in it. I mean, when I was
3: kind of scrolling through the...
1: Yes. Oh, Inserts is the one about pornographers, right? Isn't that the one?
4: That was one that I had to click on the title because I'd never heard of it. And the title in the context of an X-rated series sounded uh, possibly salacious or something, so I clicked. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, Richard Dreyfuss and Jessica Harper make an X-rated film. Um, oh, a dear. British drama <laughs> Yeah That's, I've never wanted to see Dreyfus
2: <laughs> running away but.
4: I mean there's other things in the series Like I didn't realize that Clute had had An X uh, rating before It was uh, they were forced To recut it um, Yeah, there, so they're showing that
3: There are a number of titles that I was really Shocked had been Rated X I mean even something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 Was kind of Took me aback. And merely has
2: (laughs) a woman being terrorized by a (laughs) maniac wearing the face of her co worker.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Gentle family comedy.
3: Fair enough.
4: Um, There's also playing this weekend, there's a new print of Howard Alk's American Revolution 2, which is a very interesting documentary from 69. Uh, Howard Alk was a Chicago filmmaker who was part of kind of like a radical group of documentarians. Um, He also directed uh, The Death of Fred Hampton and um american revolution 2 has all of this incredible documentary footage of the 68 uh, democratic convention but then sort of continues the story in the wake of that unrest with uh, some black panther leaders and leaders of um, a group called the young something Uh, there were a group of poor whites uh, primarily uh, from appalachia now living in chicago and they basically have these meetings where they're trying to, they're trying to have solidarity with each other. Basically, um, that they uh, recognize that they should have common ground in various political struggles that they're both agitating for. And it's like sort of you're in these meetings with these groups trying to work it out in the wake of this moment where the left is super fractured and trying to come together. It is very interesting. And it's a restored 35 print. This is a film that I, I showed. Years ago, it shows occasionally and it's always like been shown on like a DVD and uh, a brand new 35 print, I believe, from Chicago filmmakers. Oh, it's at Anthology Film Archives.
1: No, I mean, that, that sounds very, very tantalizing and, and any sort of organized, I mean, any sort of picture of like a collective action like that. It, it seems like people have real troubles like figuring out how to represent that now. I mean, the, the idea of people getting together in some political way, um, I don't know. I don't have follow-up thought to that but uh i don't know that's one reason why as as fantastical as it could be like sorry to bother you was kind of interesting because it was envisioning some kind of like group political action even though that's not a documentary as far as i know but yeah
3: um also in terms of collectives and anthology uh there's a two-person art collective called soda jerk which is uh, featuring the New York premiere of Terror Nullius, uh, which is a feature that they've shown around the world and uh, it's finally coming back to New York where they currently live and work. But yeah, I haven't seen this uh, particular piece, but basically the style in which they work is appropriation from really popular Hollywood cinema or generally kind of like pop moving image ephemera and um, and it's all extremely—it's um, it's almost like singular in the detail in which they're um, collaged and montaged. Um, so they're really, you know, brilliant editors and rotoscopers, and you know, they're kind of working in like a Craig Baldwin uh, type of area of like narrative recontextualization of, you know, archival or found footage. Uh, Although, again, in this case, working, you know, from from popular cinema. And I think they tend to foreground, um, you know, sort of like latent uh, master narratives or kind of uh, shattering uh, myth-making within popular cinema. Uh, So this particular piece, uh, Terra Nullius, is all made from Australian films. And it basically uh, confronts the, I don't know if you would call it like doctrine or claim uh, that settlers in Australia made uh, with regard to uh, the aboriginal people. And so it basically is looking at this trend, uh, the way that this idea manifests itself
1: in a popular Australian film. Hmm. It's um, that um, For some reason, I'm thinking of that documentary about what is it called Not Hollywood Not Quite Hollywood do you remember that one about the Uh, Australian exploitation movies yeah Yeah.
3: well they were telling me that they were excited to finally show it in New York because their New York friends know more about Australian cinema than their Australian (laughs) friends or at least in terms of exploitation film and stuff could just be the people that they know uh, here but um,
4: did I read that they sort of ran afoul of some sort of Australian film certifying board with this film
3: yeah Yeah, so um, so as artists, they work a lot based on um, you know commissions and grants. And there's a foundation whose name I can't recall off the top of my head, but they asked to have their name removed from it and declared the film to be un-Australian. And they may have even (laughs) tried to un-Australian. (laughs) Un-Australian. Well, right. And they may have even tried to prevent it from being shown. I mean, it was definitely shown. And I think Guardian Australia put it as their, like, number three movie of the mm. year or something. And that's coming um, up
1: where, where again? That's,
3: so that's an anthology, anthology, uh, this, anthology this weekend. Yeah. So listeners will have missed the opportunity <laughs> to see it. Uh, but they are they do have a number of shows coming up in 2019. Uh, again, I think mostly in Australia, where okay. hopefully Film Comet has a robust... Uh, listenership. I think we actually uh, have a
1: figure on that, but uh, I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll get it right next time. Cool. Uh,
3: as well as uh, Denmark, I think they have. Oh, uh, Denmark's big show. millions. We have millions Okay. There. Awesome. Millions and. Uh, million, and then yeah. they are New York based, so they they tend to screen uh, every so often. They're also known for they did a long form music video for the Avalanche's. So their last album, huh. uh, which I think is called the Was. It's like a, it's almost like an album-length remix. It's like thirty-five minutes uh, condensed of the album, and then they've done yeah, like a video for it. And then it's really a perfect marriage between artist and art, artist and artist, mm. because the again, like the the richness of the collage, you know, visually and that idea of appropriation, I think, is really shared between the mm. musician and visual artists.
1: Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap, wrap up so we can uh, get to our next segment. Anyone have, want to mention a single title that they're going to go see soon, now, soon?
4: I think I'll probably see Trouble in Paradise at Metrograph during the Grifter series. That's like a delightful film. And um, I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm looking forward to that. Sexy romp. <laughs> I, I actually was
1: pr- probably. I mean, they are showing the grift. Actually, showing the grifters too. I'm probably gonna see that. I was just talking with with someone about how that movie just uh, it. You had the Jim Thompson feel of an actual disgusting demi existing. That is, I, I feel like movies are not successful <laughs> at, at creating. But that was like you know, that that the off screen just awful world where you turn a court you turn down the wrong alley, and there's a whole <laughs> terrible world waiting for you. Nick. What do you think, Turner?
2: I'm just I'm just voting a straight Turner ticket. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, wh- where does where does one end um, with uh, with JT? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I got yeah. nothing.
1: <laughs> all right, all right. And with with that, uh, I think we'll we'll come to an end. Uh, but stick around. We'll be going into new releases in a second. But thank you, all of my fellow rep lovers. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>
0: Support for Film Comment comes from Sundance Institute and the Sundance Film Festival, returning January 24th through February 3rd. Presenting world premieres of independent film, along with live music, filmmaker conversations, and more. Screenings in Park City, Salt Lake City, and Sundance Resort, all in the festival's home state of Utah. Additional info, including pass and package details, at sundance.org. In a very special live stream event that took place on November 27th, Black Panther director Ryan Coogler sat down with Film Comment Editor-in-Chief Nicholas Rapold for a wide-ranging conversation. This one-night-only free screening and talk, presented by Film Comment and supported by Art House Convergence, offered audiences the chance to experience the acclaimed film on the big screen with their local communities. Watch the entire conversation with Coogler at filmcomment.com slash Panther.
1: Uh, <laughs> so we're back, as you can tell. <laughs> and um, this is now the new releases portion of, of our podcast, and and now joining our super group, uh, Cameron Collins from Vanity Fair, and Nick, uh, uh, your reference just lights the way for us about where what we're going to talk about.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's, I wanted to, I wanted to come in singing in the character of Walt Kowalski, the Grand Torino theme, um, <laughs> but uh, actually. Auteur Clint Eastwood has graced us with some more original tunage in his new film, The Mule, oh. uh, including uh, a perky little ditty that rhymes Pancho Villa and gonorrhea. Uh,
1: is this true Can someone else? This is all true. This is
2: everything, true. <laughs> everything that we I'm have gonna, said. I'm
1: going to periodically ask this about your claims about The Mule, so just <laughs> so you know. Because <laughs> you guys can make up anything. I'm I gonna... have not seen it, but I'm in the presence of three people who have seen it.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll briefly venture a synopsis. The true tale of a nonagenarian uh, Midwesterner who became a cartel drug mule has been brought to the screen by 88-year-old Clint Eastwood with his second film of 2018, <laughs> uh, with a screenplay by the Gran Torino scribe whose name presently escapes me. Nick Shank.
3: Nick Shank, Maybe?
2: Yes. Um... I don't, I don't want to get sidetracked on plot alone because it's not what one would call a plot-heavy uh, film. Uh, its subject is a meandering old man who is put to use uh, for legal purposes, and it is very much the work of a meandering old man. It takes its sweet time. So much of it you can say does not drive any kind of plot forward whatsoever. And the Eastwood performance is very interesting because this is, I think it's been six years since he was in trouble with the curve, 10 years since Gran Torino, and he's diminished significantly. I mean, he is visibly smaller on screen now. And even 10 years ago in Gran Torino, that movie still sort of traded on the fact of his imposing physical presence. This is the first time that that's just sort of a non-factor in a character that he's playing. Um, Instead, Earl Stone, I believe is the character's name, who is a horticulturist specializing in daylilies who's been driven out of business by the dang internet, kind of... Is a character who survives by his wits, and a lot of that is playing on people's assumption of his senility, and it's almost a sort of Hamlet act. He's just senile north northwest, but when the wind blows southerly, uh, he knows the difference between a hawk and a handsaw. And similarly, you know, while watching the movie, there are moments that sort of play on your expectations of what a nearly 90-year-old filmmaker does can do and to what degree they're responsible for what they're doing and it's an incredibly canny and strange act that he plays both on screen and with an audience and gee there's a lot of a lot to dig into here yeah uh,
5: (laughs) building off of what Nick said about uh there being a lot to build into I think what I I mean, I was not surprised to see that some of the early responses to this were kind of what you would expect people to say about a Clint Eastwood movie in which he, you know, uses some racial pejoratives. There's a, a, frankly, to me, it's a punchline. Maybe not everyone feels that way. A moment where he encounters a group of dykes on bikes and uh, accidentally misgenders one of them but also teaches them how to fix their motorcycle and his going line is, buy dykes. Which, which in context, <laughs> which in context plays differently than the way that I'm describing it, and also their reaction is I think different than what I was expecting. But there are moments like that. He he, um, in the midst of making a run, he uh, sees a black family on the side of the road who need to have a tire change, and they don't know how to because they're millennials, and we don't know how to do anything. Um, and he addresses them as Negroes, <laughs> and they respond. They 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 do not let that. Don't, they don't let him get away with it, but there's uh there's a lot of stuff like that. And I so I was not surprised to see that some people's reactions were, you know, this movie is racist trash. But like Nick, I, I completely agree that actually I think that he's very cannily playing with playing with our expectations of, you know, he's like the whole thing is like this old, like octogenarian old white guy who is a drug mule. The cops. Like the DEA, uh, headed by Bradley Cooper and Lawrence Fishburne and Michael Pena, they are just not looking for this guy. Nobody is looking for this guy. And even within the cartel, um, beyond, I think, the cartel leader played by Andy Garcia, who's, who's fantastic, who has a great sense of humor about this, uh, you know, younger people, people lower down in the rung, don't really know what to do with this lackadaisical old guy who sings and eats hamburgers as he's driving thousands, millions of dollars of cocaine. Um, I think it's pretty yeah. fascinating, and I think the, I mean, the senility part is is pretty interesting because when you go back and read the kind of original reporting on this guy, on Leo Sharp, the guy that the film's based on, that was also a question even up to the trial. Just is this guy senile? Um, can is this guy just being used by these cartels to do these awful acts, or is he heavily aware of what he's doing because he has a he has no uh, traffic tickets but he does apparently have something in his past regarding like delivering drugs or something um, so there's just a lot of questions anyway in the story about just what is this guy capable of And it's interesting to me that Clint Eastwood sort of took that and made that story it's not really like it's not just the excitement of seeing him be a drug mule and seeing him have threesomes, <laughs> multiple threesomes. Our fact checkers had to yeah. ask me about this because oh, yeah. I had a line about this, and I was like, "No, I, I'm very sure.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>.
5: <laughs> I'm very sure. There's, there's a, this is not this is not ambiguous." Uh, but yeah, it's, I think it's fascinating.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like senility almost seems a little far afield. I mean, I think it's almost more of a. You know, uh, I mean, innocence, I guess, would be the wrong word, too. But he's uh, more like a a, a cluelessness and a lack of filter. Um, But, I mean, he's getting away with a lot just on being sort of charming. Uh, When you first encounter him, he's sort of at the height of his... Um, On top
2: of the daylily world.
4: Yeah, he is dominating a daylily convention. Uh, Seersucker suit, you know, and also uh, it's uh, 10 years in the past and he sort of struts in with the physicality that you really don't see for the rest of the movie. Um, But yeah, you know... He's, you know, kissing every daylily, uh, you know, uh, saleswoman on the cheek, and throughout the sort of, you know, he sort of turns on the charm with the the guys at the at the shop uh, that hook him up with his uh, cartel packages, and like when he does get pulled over or stopped by a cop, he just sort of, you know, chit chats with him about uh, how much he loves dogs, as he, you know, is able to like pull a bit of sleight of hand to make sure that the drug sniffing dog. Uh, uh stays away from his load i mean he is he's charming he's uh someone that i think everyone sort of just responds to and implicitly like let's go which is definitely a result of him being an old white guy but also the result of him being clint eastwood um i I think can't go unsaid.
2: (laughs) well I, i i saw uh some dingus online had uh had uh, sort of yoked... And that's
1: some dingus online. That's some some dingus dingus. Online com, I think. Yeah, on
2: yeah. the dang internet, <laughs> had had kind of yoked this <laughs> and uh, Green Book, a movie that Cam wrote really wonderfully on together. And I think that that's very wrong-headed, if only for one reason, which is that Green Book is a movie that sort of traffics in... Uh, I think it's a Farberism, uh, like fatuous brotherhood. And uh, it's you know giving us all of these reassuring nostrums about, you know, we're all the same inside. And, you know, which, what, what matters the color of a man's skin? Whereas, like, the mule insistently hammers on race. And there, I mean, certainly part of it is, you know, implicit in the story that's being told but there are things there that, I mean, the scene that Cam mentioned with the black couple at the roadside, I guarantee you, every single person at Warner Brothers is like, Clint, please take this shit out. I guarantee you. And and then additionally, I mean, not only do we see Clint get pulled over, but later we see uh, a Mexican-American man getting pulled over by DEA agents, the DEA incidentally, produced trade is the most ineffectual money wasting bureaucratic uh yeah,
4: next to the the people that tried sully yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely the people who tried sully the like fbi agent who shoots kevin costner in a perfect world yeah. like I, I need to put together a master list of a power feds ranking. in, <laughs> in, in <one> eastwood <laughs> movies um but yeah i'm it. it and you have this scene where, and it's really a sort of troubling scene where this guy just goes into an absolute, like, s- panic when he's pulled over by the DEA. I think I texted to uh, Nelly like, uh, Clint's Black Lives Matter, now this is canon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is not a movie that for two seconds, like makes any pretense about race being a non-issue in America.
4: And I will say for a movie that is it is meandering and sort of seems to be guided by things that just Clint Eastwood thinks are entertaining. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, like every scene, it's just like, I would say half the scenes like don't really have a reason to be there other than that they're fun to watch, which is exactly, I mean, what better way to make a movie that it is like, they easily could have cut half of these like offending scenes and it would not have change the plot of the movie almost in the slightest yeah like
2: i (laughs) I, there's one bit that i think is a great instance of how canny the character is in sort of playing on people's expectations where basically earl winds up at a drop location that he shouldn't know the location of and he's getting shaken down by some of these cartel guys who are asking him and it's because one of his contacts on the other end is like put in the wrong address basically and they're shaking him down for like who the fuck gave you this address and he blurts out i don't know they all look the fucking same (laughs) and like quite it's very obvious if you've been watching the movie like he has very like He develops very close relationships with these guys he's working with. He knows exactly who put that address in. He's saying that in order to not get somebody in trouble. So it's just one of these many instances of, you know, playing on the expectation of his brain being complete Swiss cheese at this point, but perhaps knowing quite a bit more about what's going on.
5: Right, and I think um, to point about just... It's being a movie about what Clint Eastwood finds entertaining. I think an interesting aspect of this movie is that this character is also a guy who, as far as his family is concerned, is a guy that has not been around because he's a guy who doesn't really know that the party's over. He's just a guy who would rather be at these daylily like conventions, getting laid, winning prizes for his beautiful daylilies. Which I looked into. Like the real guy actually apparently has like some serious like he's like a serious figure in apparently the daylily world. Um, but you know, he, he would just rather be with his flowers. He would just rather be in the garden. Um, and he has these, these rifts between himself and his ex-wife played by Dan Weist and his daughter in the movie is played by Allison Eastwood, his daughter. Um, and I, I was telling these guys before we started recording that there was something interesting that I'd found out. And that is that that entire personal aspect of the movie is, is in, in no way related to the original guy. I, I had to be sure about this because I was looking I was looking in articles. I was just wondering, you know, how else an Eastwood is in this movie? I'm looking at pictures from the, the Mule's premiere, and uh, I'm seeing that all eight, question mark, of his kids? I only knew of seven. There's someone else there who might be one of his kids, plus uh, an ex-wife and current girlfriend are all showing up to events for this film. Um... And as well, you know, this week finding out about the the death of Sandra Locke and and there are things in the movie that I think echo that as well. These things have nothing to do with uh, Leo Sharp, the original guy. These are Eastwoodisms that are interesting to me, because the original guy was estranged from his family. He did not, ha- but he he did not have the sort of conflicting relationship with his daughter. His ex wife did not die of cancer. She just wasn't talking to him. Um, there are these there, there are these kinds of personal arcs of reconciliation that are fascinating um that really give this movie a kind of eerie i've been calling it like it would be a great last eastwood movie because it seems to be a a kind of making amends for some things a reckoning with some things while also doubling down on the i'm going to be the guy who like says negroes in a movie because you expect that (laughs) you expect that of me (laughs) um in the midst of yeah these remarkable confrontations with the police that are to my mind very unambiguously not pro-police um so it's just an, an interesting, you know, it's it's Clint. It's 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 full of these things that would seem to be in conflict, but in terms of his worldview actually aren't. Um, yeah. which is valuable.
4: But I, I do think it's this unfortunate thing where so many people see what they want to see, good or bad, in his films. I mean, I, I walked out of a screening, and it was a person who's a fan of his work, but was like, well, this is uh, Clint's, you know, MAGA movie. It's all about how uh, the cartels are coming to, like, uh, get us and, like, infecting the the country with this thing. And I was like, the movie is about the futility of the war on drugs and that they spent all these resources hunting down a... Um, down-on-his-luck veteran who um, knows absolutely nothing about the cartel organization. Uh, But, you know, there is a level of sort of projection with Clint Eastwood, um, I think because of the way he comports himself in real life, that does sort of, um, I think, create a really unfortunate discourse around his work. It's very, so many people aren't talking about the actual film, I think.
2: I think it would be hard to find a movie that is more kind of morally neutral on the issue of drug dealing as a profession (laughs) itself, even when there's a sort of subplot in which the Eastwood character um, develops a sort of relationship with a higher up in the cartel played by an Argentinian actor whose name is escaping me. And uh, he kind of takes him aside and advises him to get out of the life. But it's never anything to do with, like, you know, kids getting high on the (laughs) playground. It's like, no, just spend more time with your family. (laughs) And, like, generally, like, there is no, from a moral perspective, uh, difference that I can tell between uh, how the Daylily community is regarded.
4: (laughs) It's worth pointing out that he basically has the same conversation uh, with the FBI agent. Uh, in a sort of heat-style Waffle House uh, confrontation. wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, where he um, is is basically parodying the same advice to uh, Bradley Cooper as he did to this um, cartel middle management uh, person.
2: And then I should just note also that in the middle of this elegiac film which combines aspects of late Ford with the uh, the Adam Sandler film Click, you have <laughs> an extended sequence where it just turns into the thong song video. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. I don't, I don't think uh, everybody has to like or even love Clint Eastwood's movies, but if you don't find it at least slightly exciting that this <laughs> ancient man <laughs> who gives zero fucks whatsoever. <laughs> still gets the keys to drive this like a major studio mechanism. I don't know, man. I don't know what you're looking for in cinema. <laughs> yeah, and I I mean, to that to
5: your point and that scene involves a cartel and I have to say I found the depiction of the cartel here really exciting. I think I think I mean, when you say like middle management, yeah, it is this sort of it, his relationship to the cartel is, first of all, determined by who's in charge in the, in the given moment. And there are these things that he says throughout the film about sort of younger people who, in the film, tend to be more uptight and, and have sticks up their asses about, in particular, authority. Um... And the, you know the older cartel leader sort of understands him and kind of is is hip to his rhythm and is sort of advising all the younger guys to just like fucking relax. Like he's 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 hauling millions of dollars cocaine. He's not snorting it. He's not getting caught. If he wants to just like be slow and stop and get some ribs or whatever, just like fucking relax. But but the the like the intergenerational attitudes there and the shift toward when something happens, and leadership changes. Uh, the characterization of, of these cartel members who are, who are hard asses as these cowboys who just don't get it um, is fascinating to me. It's, it's like it's – what are you saying about authority – um, what are you saying about sympathy and, and, and just if we're thinking of this as a kind of labor, just like labor, the kinds of ways that people are treating this guy who this this old guy who's working for them, who just really doesn't give a fuck, who has nothing at stake in their operation, who's just doing this because he needs money and they need someone who's not going to get caught. It's just it's all kind of, you know, I mean, to Nelly's point about people seeing what they want to see. I think for every argument that this is like a manga movie, there are just very clear counterpoints. Always, it's just pretty obvious. It's it's. I don't see how you see sort of some of the traffic stopping scenes here and and don't see that these are among the more affecting scenes of this kind in movies this year. And this was a year full of movies that had police and 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 racial profiling, and you know this is there are a lot of movies about that stuff here. But in Clint Eastwood's movie, it was like the Mexican guy getting pulled over saying the the five most dangerous moments of my life are right now (laughs) with the cops, with fucking Bradley Cooper pointing a gun at me. Uh, I just haven't really heard... I haven't really heard characters under the gun in that way express it that precisely. And I haven't seen it expressed visually that intensely or precisely. It's like a, a... two minute scene and it does more than most movies on this subject that I've seen this year have done in the entire scope of the movies
4: and I think the way that it's showing these uh, DEA agents which again are you know uh, you know presented like fairly neutrally that this guy is freaking out and to them it's just it's the most routine thing in the world and like there's like this disconnect um, of the experiences that I think uh, is like really well um portrayed that it's just like they're kind of like rolling their eyes at him overreacting, whereas they do have just helicopters going overhead and this guy thinks he's in real trouble. Right, they're um, after like this,
5: They're after like the Sinaloa cartel. Yeah. And he's just a guy that's driving and he's freaking out because they are they are after Clint Eastwood. They just don't know it yet. Um it's really I think it's a really frankly exceptional scene.
2: I, so let the old man in. Let the <laughs> old man in into your heart, Into- not. Don't let him in. In the words of the Toby Keith song <laughs> that plays over the Mizoguchi-esque
1: final shot of *The Mule*. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't really know what to do at this point, other than drop this microphone and go see this movie right now. Yeah. I I almost feel like an anticlimax to talk about any other movies that are coming out. In this, if someone wants to, or should we just leave it at that. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Spider Verse, honestly. Spider Verse is good. Okay. Okay.
5: <laughs> spider Verse, no, Spider Spider Verse uh, is 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 good. It's it's about a different Spider Man, Miles Morales, who's an Afro Latino high schooler in Brooklyn. Um, but it is very much a movie that knows that the narrative problem of superhero movies right now is just the need for everyone to have an origin story. It takes that and it explodes that by having a bunch of spider people, an anime one, a noir one voiced by Nicolas Cage, uh, a Porky Pig one voiced by John Mulaney, multiple Peter Parkers, because it's the Spider-Verse, so it's multidimensional, you see. <laughs> <laughs> Some sort of something happens and and there are people traveling through portals and, and there are just a bunch of spider people in every sort of dimension and there's a noir dimension and a, a whatever. But, it, but it's basically, it's a... Let's just get rid of this idea of, of, of reinventing the wheel of the origin story because that seems to be what this movie has to do. And just have, rather than reinventing the wheel, just keep adding more wheels and making it ridiculous and <laughs> pointing out how ridiculous it is. Um, and it's it's good. It like every fucking person is in it, voicing people in it. Leave Schreiber, <laughs> Catherine Han, Mahershala Ali, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but it's it's good. It's written by Phil Lord, one of the Lego movie people. And sometimes I think Lord and Miller are like too clever. Um, in, a, in a way that gets a little boring sometimes, but this is good. Yeah, it's good. It's a good stoner movie for kids who don't need to be stoned to enjoy things like this. But it's illogical in a way that I think I would have appreciated as a kid. I don't. I didn't really like Pixar stuff as a kid or, or complete narratives. I liked nonsense, and this is much <laughs> closer to that. Yeah, but you'd say it's better to get the kids stoned first. <laughs> <laughs> Are kids already on something. I think they're generally. Yeah, but on. parents definitely.
4: Yeah. Get stoned and bring your kids to the movies. I, I guess, yeah. No, absolutely.
1: <laughs> but is it mule good? I guess is what I want to know. Okay,
5: <laughs> <laughs> mule. I mean, wish it had come out in time for you know making end of year lists uh, because yeah. I think it's really, I think it's a really special
2: movie. Yeah, uh, it's 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 interesting too to see the, and I, I hadn't really realized this till um, I was speaking to a friend the other day. The fact that it kind of to watch the trailer which is a wonderfully well put together trailer it does look like eastwood in full like prestige picture mode uh when in fact what you get is like eastwood in full wackadoo <laughs> <laughs> uh Iger sanction uh, mode
5: yeah no it's it, it, it's 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 too true i i thought a lot about Iger Sanct- i mean i'm always thinking about that's Iger Sanction. literally i think every time we ever see one another <laughs> iker sanction is one of my classic someone asked me what movie should they watch and i say iker sanction just just i'm not going to tell you anything about it just just go ahead a guy died making it that's all i'm going to tell you um and they just hate me <laughs> after that but it, yeah it is one of those it's I don't know, you know, I'm going to really, whenever Clint stops making movies, I'm really going to miss having
2: someone making films like this. There's, I mean, the, the line that I always have about Eastwood is just, you do realize nobody ever wins in commercial filmmaking. Nobody, the house always wins. You don't have a hit, you get too old, you get compromised. So, again, like, how can you not root for the one guy who might break the bank and just keep doing it forever?
4: I sort of feel like this movie will do well, right? I think so. Yeah. I feel like it, you know, people will just see this over the holidays. It's kind of like made to see with like three generations of, (laughs) right? Yes. Yes. But I will say it, it feels like a real goodbye, if not to Clint the director, definitely to Clint the performer. And he really goes out singing and dancing and having threesomes. <laughs> <laughs> It's really, there's this yeah. wonderful shot when one
5: of his handlers is just, it's just, doesn't trust him and is watching his hotel room and is a young, very attractive guy, but just total stuck up his ass and just sees these two women walking out of Clint's room in the morning. And it's just like, see, you could be, you could be him.
2: You, you wish you were him. Put down your phones, Gen Z, <laughs> and start having some fucking threesomes.
1: Ah. Uh. I think I think that brings us to an ending here. We always like to end with some life advice, Uh, so that's where we're at now. Um, So yeah, the mule. Well, thank you all of you for for this education. Don't let the old man
2: in. (laughs) Toasting sunsets with wine.
1: Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.